Before we get into our study this morning, I just want to give you a, a couple updates of kind of some upcoming things that we have going on and, and, and a couple of those things. First of all, I want you to be aware of our upcoming schedule, specifically what's going to be happening in this room in the month of June. We're going to, for the month of June, we're going to take a break from the book of Nehemiah just for a few weeks. And I, I'm, I'm actually going to take a, a short break uh, from the pulpit. I'm going to use the month of June uh, to prepare for where we're going next and to do some preparation and planning for the fall and beyond. I'm also, that's kicking off, I'm going to be preaching a conference in Florida at Code Blazes Church. So some of you might know Code. He, he, he uh, pastors downtown Baptist Temple in Ocala, Florida. Uh, is a friend of ours and, and a, a friend of the church, part of the Living Faith Fellowship Church. I'm going to be preaching a conference for him starting this Thursday, actually, so I'd appreciate your prayers uh, for that. And the, and the conference runs through Sunday, and then Jen and I are going to get away for a few days uh, for a mini vacation, so we're, we're looking forward to that. So next Sunday, I want you to be aware of this, next Sunday we have the privilege of having Justin Trotter with us. And so he's going to be in town, he's preaching our youth conference, and I've asked him uh, to preach here for me next Sunday. Uh, since, since I'm going to be out of town, and, and he's going to do that. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. I'm, I'm disappointed I'm not going to be here. Uh, but I hope you will be. Uh, I hope you'll come and, and listen to Justin. That's going to be a fun day. And then, and then after that, for the final three Sundays in the month of June, I've asked Jeff to do a mini-series of his own. And so uh, Jeff is going to be preaching uh, uh, three weeks on prophecy and so that's going to be good, and I'm, I'm, I'm certainly excited about that as well, too. So I'll be here those weeks, but I won't be preaching, uh, but then I'll be back in the pulpit starting in July, and then, and then through the summer, we'll finish out the book of Nehemiah in August. So we'll go through July. We, after today, we got about six more weeks uh, in the book of Nehemiah, and so we'll finish in time for Summer's End celebration, and then come September, we'll be starting a near, new series. So be praying with me about that as well. I have some thoughts and ideas on where we're going, but that's part of what I'm going to be working through uh, in the month of June. So that's kind of a calendar uh, update. I also want, want you guys to, to be, be praying about and participating in what we're going to be doing on, first of all, Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. on prayer. So we've kind of set this year aside and, and been talking about prayer and worship, and, and so we're really going to use this summer to have that as our focus. And so what we're doing at 9 a.m. Uh, on Sunday starting next week isn't just a filler. It's, it's, it's way more important than that. And so I want all of you guys here, and, and uh, if, if you can make it, um, it would be great. And we'll be praying for something specific every week. So that's how we're also going to keep going in our prayer uh, groups, our prayer teams. So on the second Sunday of each month, June, July, August, the, those prayer teams for Albania, for Columbus, for Hungary, those are going to meet at 9 a.m., so you're not going to want to miss that. And then the other Sundays, we're going to be praying for something very specific. So, for example, next Sunday, June 5th, we're going to be praying for camp because all of our students are going to be leaving that next day. Um, so that's our time as a family to come together and, and, and pray for that. And, and again, each week we're going to have something specific we'll be praying for. Well, there'll be a short lesson on prayer uh, during that time, but it's really going to be focused uh, on praying. And then, and then those evenings, those first Sundays uh, where we normally do prayer, we have that time of worship and fellowship. And, and, and those summer, those are good times of, of fellowship and the cookouts, uh, but we're going to kick it off. We're going to worship the Lord. You're going to hear out of his word for just a little bit. And so I, I, I hope you guys make those a priority. Um, they're a priority for me, um, and, and I want you to be there with me. Uh, so that's, that's kind of uh, where we're going. The other thing, I, I do want to um, say a word just about what happened last Tuesday in Uvalde, Texas. And, and I want us praying about that. Obviously, the praying for the families directly affected by, by that tragedy. And when something like that happens, you know, all the, all the talking heads come out. Because they think they have something brilliant to say that everybody needs to hear, and they don't. Um, and it happens, it happens with everybody. It happens on both sides of the aisle, that sort of thing. For me, you know, I, I, I can't get caught up in all that. And I don't, I don't post on Facebook. If, if we're friends on Facebook, that's, that's awesome. I just don't post anything. 
you just won't see that for me. That's not what I do. I don't, I don't care to let the world know what I think. Um, but I do want you to know. I, I do care about that. Uh, so here it is. This, is. this is what I think about that. It's, it's quite simple. The world needs Jesus. And that's, that's what it is. The gospel is the only answer. Um, you know, more gun laws certainly aren't the answer. And, and, and I, you know, personally and philosophically don't desire that because I, I don't, you know, call me conspiracy theorist, whatever. I don't think it's a big stretch that if they take guns that they'll ultimately take our Bible um, as a book of hate speech. And, and, and I kind of want an AR-15 when that day comes. But... Um, <laughs> So I, I, I told Jennifer that I was going to say that, and she told me not to. <laughs> but she's not in here. She's working with kids. So she'll never even know. Um, but, but, but I also, you know, to, in, in fairness, I, you know, while I'm certainly okay with the ideas that are out there of arming teachers and one point of entry and security at schools, you know, I'm, I'm certainly okay with all of that. That's not the answer either. That's not the answer because the answer has to address the problem. And the real problem is the condition of the human heart. I mean, the, there was a murder when the population of the world was four. You know, sin, sin death comes from sin. Um, and the, the problem is the condition of the human heart, and the only answer to that problem is Jesus. And everything else is dealing with symptoms. So it's on us as the church to be involved and to do our job, and that's really what we're going to see in our text in Nehemiah this morning. So let's go ahead and get into it. We've made it to chapter 11, so if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn there with me. And Nehemiah chapter 11 is another chapter full of names. You know, Nehemiah, he just loves it, man. He's, he loves listing people. And we're not even done. We're going to see it again in chapter 12. But today we're going to see a list of people living in Jerusalem and their individual and specific roles within that community. And as mundane as a chapter like this might seem, there are always lessons for us to learn. And that's because no verse in the Bible is wasted space. No verse is meaningless to us. I believe 2 Timothy 3.16 that says all scripture is given by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So not some scripture or, or not even most scripture, but all scripture. And all includes Nehemiah chapter 11. So as simple as this chapter might be and as simple as today's message is going to be, and, and trust me it is quite simple, it's still important. In fact, I think some of the most important messages are, are the simple ones. And, and, and we are commanded to study the Bible, and there is so much deep and super cool stuff to learn about in the Bible. And, and we're commanded to do that, and we should put our work to that. But ultimately, unless that trans does the work in our life that it's, that it's intended to, unless it transforms us, unless it encourages us to be involved in the mission, then, then what's it really doing in your life? You need to ask that question because 1 Corinthians 8.1 tells us that knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. So unless you know what is, what is, what is balanced uh, by love and how to balance knowledge with love, which should be loving the Lord and loving the things that the Lord loves, then this book can be dangerous. It, it is a dangerous book. So what we're going to look at today is huge. In, in fact, I'm calling what we're going to study today the keys to a meaningful life. And that's a bold title, but, a, but I'm not just trying to grab your attention. I, I do mean it. And these very simple points we're going to pull out of our text are huge when it comes to building for the Lord. They, they are so important for your family and your home, and they are so important for this church. But before we get into all of it, let me, let me bring you up to speed so we're all on the same page on where we're at in this book. So Nehemiah and Ezra and all the other leaders and laborers had worked very hard to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And in Ezra, the temple had be, been rebuilt. And with Nehemiah, we've, we've seen the walls and the gates, they were rebuilt. And then Nehemiah and Ezra joined forces to rebuild the people. And they opened up the word of God. 
And just as Psalm 119 verse 130 says, the entrance of thy words giveth light, it giveth understanding unto the simple. And the children of Israel's eyes were enlightened, and they were open, and they saw very clearly why they were in the situation that they were in, and why they had spent this time in captivity. And they recognized their sin and the sin of their fathers, and they repented, and they entered into a covenant to live according to God's law. Many were willing, 84 of them we saw last week, were willing to put their names down and be counted as those who were going to do it right. So they consecrated themselves to that lifestyle, living according to God's law. And now when we get to chapter 11, it's time to do it and time to put it all together and build the community to God's glory, build the people. And that gives us the theme of chapter 11, which is application. They were going to begin applying what they have learned and what they have committed to. So let's pick it up, Nehemiah chapter 11, starting at verse 1. And, and we're, we're just going to read a few verses here at the beginning, and then we'll pick up some other verses along the way. But, but what we're going to see right here at the beginning of this chapter is there, there is a problem that they need to solve. And their solution is going to give us the keys to a meaningful life. And like I said, we're going to read down through verse 4 here to start. It says, And the rulers of the people dwelt at Jerusalem, and the rest of the people also cast lots to bring one of ten to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city, and nine parts to dwell in other cities. And the people blessed all the men that willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. Now these are the chief of the province that dwelt in Jerusalem, but in the cities of Judah dwelt everyone in his possession in their cities, to wit, Israel, the priest, and the Levites, and the Nethanims, and the children of Solomon's servants. And at Jerusalem dwelt certain of the children of Judah, and of the children of Benjamin, of the children of Judah, Athiah, the son of Uzziah, the son of Zechariah, the son of Amariah, the son of Shephatiah, the son of Mahalalel, the children of Perez. All right, let's pray. And then we'll get into our study. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we do, um, we do want you to know this morning that, man, we are, as, as we celebrate a weekend of, of uh, an acknowledging those that have sacrificed for our freedoms, and, and we look back on a week where, where lives were taken so unnecessarily in tragedy, and um, Lord, we know, that, we know that you know all, and, and we want to thank you for your sacrifice for us for your sacrifice for this world, and, and, and Lord, we don't want to lose sight of that. And so, Lord, as, as we come and we gather together today, Lord, I pray we're brought into remembrance of, of who you are and what you've done for us and how it's our job now to, to serve you in return. And so, Lord, I'm just thankful for your word and what it teaches us. I pray that you use your Holy Spirit, to do the work that, that, that only he can to teach us your word this morning. I pray that everything that is said is true to your word. I pray that it's honoring to you, and I pray that you'll be glorified through all of it. We love you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we see the problem that the children of Israel are facing right here at the beginning of chapter 11, and that was there, there weren't enough people living in Jerusalem. They were reestablishing this city, and, and, and stuff had to get done. And they didn't have enough people to do it. Now, we saw this foreshadowed, and we saw it talked about in chapter 7 and verse 4, which says, Now the city was large and great, but the people were few therein, and the houses were not builded. So there weren't many people in the city, right? They had been in captivity. They had been taken away, and just a few groups had come back to the city to begin rebuilding it. So it, it was a large, it was a great city. They didn't have enough people with that. And even, even with the people that did live there, there was a housing shortage. The houses weren't even built. And this, this city was one that was prone to be attacked. It was Jerusalem. It was the capital city of Israel. That's why they had rebuilt the walls and the gates for their physical protection. So just honestly, it wasn't that appealing to everyone, even those Jews that were excited about what was going on. It wasn't that appealing for them to come and move back to the city because it was safer, it was easier to live in one of the villages outside of the city. And many of those we see in verses 25 through 36 of this chapter. But to accomplish all that they believed God was leading them to do, they needed more people. And I believe that is a true statement for us today as well. Not only for First Baptist Church, but for the body of Christ as a whole. 
And that brings us to our first key to a meaningful life. Here is what Jerusalem needed, and here is what we need. And that is quite simply for people to show up. For people to show up. And listen, they weren't picky. They just needed people that would trust the Lord enough to show up and fill a position of need. And I say that they needed people that would trust the Lord because of how they went about filling this need. Look again at verse 1. And the rulers of the people dwelt at Jerusalem. The rest of the people also cast lots to bring one of ten to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city, and nine parts to dwell in other cities. All right, so, so I want you to understand what's going on. To fill this need of people... Nehemiah and the leaders, they put together this draft-type system that was used in the Old Testament, the casting of lots. And they casted lots to send a tithe, 10% of the Jews who were living outside the city to go live in the city. If the lot fell on them, they were to move. It's where we get the phrase, well, that's, that's just my lot in life. And, you know, that as well as many other commonly used phrases comes from your King James Bible. And casting of lots was just a way to make a determination when they didn't know exactly which way to go or who, who it should be. And historically, we're told that it was done, you know, using colored rocks or rocks with numbers painted on them. I don't know. That, history says that. You don't find that in the Bible per se. Now, the Hebrew word for lot is defined as stone or pebble. So, you know, one example in our LFBI, in our homiletics class, we taught homiletics, how to preach um, this past year. And all the guys in there had to preach a message from passages that we picked out. And, and so we just wrote a passage down on a piece of paper, you know, cut it up, put it in a hat, and everybody had to go around and they picked out picked out a passage. And then we, you know, showed them, taught them how to put together a message. And by the end of the semester for their final, they had to preach a message out of that passage that, that you know, we had assigned. But it, they just picked it. it. It was their lot, so to speak. It, they got what they got. And so that was sort of a comparison to today. But here's the difference. In the Old Testament, God used the casting of lots as a system to give direction before the Bible was completed. God spoke to and through people much differently in the Old Testament than he does today. Today, there's one way. We have a completed, preserved, perfect word of God. That is how God speaks to us today, but that obviously wasn't true in Old Testament times. It wasn't completed. So God did use things like dreams and visions and casting of lots. And of course, like anything that God does, the, the devil has counterfeited what was a legitimate way that God spoke. So people use Ouija boards and tarot cards and various other things that counterfeit casting of lots. But that's all demonic God speaks to you and me today through his word. There's a Holy Spirit that teaches us what it says. And so you've, if you are getting messages from what you think is God through other means, you should probably be concerned. But I, but I do want you to know that when they were casting lots here in Nehemiah chapter 11, they weren't doing anything wrong. In fact, it was their way of putting it in God's hands and trusting him. They were putting it in God's hands and trusting him to give them an answer. The first mention of casting lots is found in Leviticus 16.8. And it has to do with the Day of Atonement. There was a sin offering that that high priest would give to atone for the sins of the nation of Israel. And they would actually come out with two goats. One that the high priest would use for that offering and then one as a scapegoat. That would, be, that would be released into the wilderness. Leviticus 16.8 says, And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. You see, this was a, a system that God set up. It was originally initiated for the, to, to, to be in conjunction with the Day of Atonement. You know, when the children of Israel had finally made it into Canaan, 
and they were dividing up the land amongst the tribes. You know how they determined who got what parcel? Joshua 18.10 tells us, it says, And Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord. And there Joshua divided the land under the children of Israel according to their divisions. And, and there's a key phrase in there that, again, gives us some, some wisdom on the casting of lots in the Old Testament. He cast lots before the Lord. It was their way of trusting the Lord. I think Proverbs 16.33 is maybe the most definitive passage on how the people of God were to view the casting of lots. Again, when it was a legitimate method that God used to communicate to his people. That verse says, the lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. The disposing thereof is the Lord. They're casting lots and they're asking the Lord to direct them. It was a system that God set up for Israel to trust him to lead them. And it's interesting because it even applied to personal disputes and arguments. Proverbs 18.18 says, The lot causeth contentions to cease and parteth between the mighty. Listen, I kind of wish casting of lots still was for today. It's not, but I wish it was. According to this verse, I think it would save a lot of counseling hours. Because today people actually have to walk in the spirit and follow Bible principles to solve their relationship issues. Who wants to do that? My experience says not too many people, but who am I? But anyway, it was a system of casting lots really about placing things. The system of casting lots was really about placing things in God's hand. But there's an application. So it's not for us today. This right here. This is how God speaks to us today. That's it. Right? So, so it's not for us today, but there's an application for us today. There's something we can learn from that. Now, here's the application for us. There are things in life that we cannot control. For example, there are terrible things that happen. This is just one example. There's a lot of things we can't control. But just what we saw last week, there are terrible things in life in this sin-stained world that we have no control over. But what we can do is we can trust God in the midst of it. God gives every man a free will. And the choice of man to sin is not God's fault. But God is still sovereign. God still guides and leads. And what God asks of us is to show up and trust him to take care of everything we can't control. Just walk according to his word. And there are plenty of things in our lives that we have no control over. You had no control over who your parents are, or what family you were born into. You had no control over where you were born, when you were born, even things like the color of your skin, or if if you were born or or developed some type of disease at a young age that had nothing to do with bad habits or anything like that. All of that, so to speak, is your lot in life. And from the outside... It might look like other people have a better lot. And maybe they do from a physical, worldly perspective. But the truth is, that's above your pay grade. God wants you to embrace all of it and trust him in the process and show up and make a difference for his glory. And you might not like your lot, but that's where trust comes in from a God who has already proven how much he loves you by what he did when he sent his son Jesus Christ to die on on the cross in your place and in my place and bring him to life again on the third day. Romans 5a, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So you can trust him. You can control that. And you prove that trust by whether you're willing to show up or not. The children of Israel were trusting God to show them who needed to show up in Jerusalem. And if their name was called, if their lot was called, they agreed to go. And for believers today, the moment you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, Your name got called. 
We looked at this verse a couple weeks ago, but 2 Timothy 1.9 says, Who has saved us, speaking of God, has saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. And your job and my job, you know where it begins? It begins with us showing up. Now, it doesn't end there. We're, we got a couple more points to get through. But this is where it starts. Being willing to show up and trust the Lord wherever you find yourself. Even if you have no control over where that is. And when you do that, God can lead you from there. That's what Proverbs 3 verses 5 and 6 tell us. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. and Lean not into thine own understanding. Remember there are things that are above your pay grade. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. That's one of those conditional promises we talked about a few weeks ago. God will direct you, but you've got to show up and trust him as a representative of him. So men, let me ask you, are you showing up in your homes as a representative of the Lord for your wives, for your kids? They need you to show up and trust the Lord so that you can lead them in the way of the Lord. Are you showing up in this church as a representative of the Lord to help lead others in relationship to him? We need you to show up and be involved with us. And, and why? Why is that? Because the home and the church are set apart as God-ordained institutions. And what we see in Nehemiah chapter 11, verse 1, is that Jerusalem needed folks to show up for the same reason. It was a holy city. Did you catch that part of the verse? And the rulers of the people dwelt at Jerusalem. The rest of the people also cast lots to bring one of ten to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city, the set-apart city, and nine parts to dwell in other cities. And this is the first time in Scripture that Jerusalem is called the holy city. Now, it's found in the Psalms, it's found in the book of Isaiah that chronologically would have been before Nehemiah, but this is the first mention in the canon order of Scripture. And we've already learned that, that we are to be set apart and that we are to set apart God in our lives Sometimes God just wants us to show up and be with him. That's what he told Moses in Exodus 24, 12. And the Lord said unto Moses, come up to me into the mount and be there. He's just asking him to show up. And I will give thee tables of stone and a law and commandments which I have written that thou mayest teach them. There's a lot that we can learn in that verse. When we show up with the Lord, when we set him apart enough to spend time with him, and you can be a good representative for him in the other places that you need to show up. Because now in Nehemiah, we see that our dwelling place. So we are to be set apart because we are in Christ. And we are to live holy lives that represent Christ. We are to set God apart. We are to set him apart in prayer. We've looked at all this through the previous weeks. And now we see that our dwelling place is to be set apart for the Lord and his purposes. And our dwelling place physically is our home. It's a God-ordained institution. And our dwelling place spiritually is the church. It's a God-ordained institution. And, and we are the church, the body of Christ. Because according to 1 Corinthians 3.16, ye or, or we are the temple of God. And I say all that and, and make that connection because Jerusalem was God's dwelling pit place for Israel in the Old Testament. And, and specifically, it was the tabernacle or the temple when they were moving along. But, but he chose Jerusalem as the holy city. And, and that's where he dwelt. Psalm 911, sing praises to the Lord which dwelleth in Zion. That's another name for Jerusalem. Declare among the people his doings. Psalm 132, verse 13 and 14. For the Lord hath chosen Zion. He hath desired it for his habitation. This is my rest forever. Here will I dwell, for I have desired it. It was a set-apart place, a holy place. And you making your home and this church a set-apart place begins with you showing up and trusting the Lord to work through you. But like I mentioned just a second ago, that's, that's not enough. That's where it starts, but that's not where it ends. But like a second, 
you also need to sacrifice. You need to sacrifice. You see, there were those in Nehemiah who willingly offered to go live in Jerusalem. Look at verse 2. And the people blessed all the men that willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. So they were, they were doing this draft. They were casting lots to see who determined, to, to make the determination on who would move back to the city. But there were other guys that just stood up and said, you know what, I'll go. I'll do it. I'm, I'm gonna, I willingly offer. I'm, I'm going to move back to the city and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help be part of this rebuilding process. And the word offered is an interesting one. We, we see it in both Testaments, and it almost always involves offering a sacrifice. So Paul used this term in the last epistle he wrote to Timothy, shortly before his death. He said, for I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. And he was talking about his death. He was about to die as a martyr for the Lord Jesus Christ. He was literally sacrificing it all. But he also used it in earlier epistles, speaking of being a living sacrifice. So for example, listen to what he told the church of Philippi in Philippians 2, verses 16 and 17. Holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain, yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. It was said, I'm giving my life as a living sacrifice to you, and, and it's my joy to do so. The word offered is used 28 times in the New Testament, and 26 of those 28 times it refers to offering a sacrifice. Now, sometimes the sacrifice was to God, and other times it was to idols. But either way, a sacrifice was involved, and it's true in the Old Testament as well. We see it from the beginning with Cain and Abel. We see it with Abraham and Isaac. Hebrews eleven seventeen says, by faith Abraham, when he was tried, what did he do? Offered up Isaac. And he that received the promises offered up his only begotten son. And again, sometimes the sacrifice was to God, like Abel and Abraham. Other times it wasn't, or at least wasn't acceptable to God like Cain. And that tells me that your willingness and my willingness isn't about if, it's about who. You see, the question isn't if your life will be a sacrifice. The question really is upon whose altar will you lie? The children of Israel willingly offered themselves to the Lord. Will you show up and willingly be that living sacrifice that Romans 12:1 demands? Or will you just live for yourself and sacrifice Yourself for yourself because you are your own God. Who are you offering your life to? Can you at least tamper down the selfishness some and consider your family? Will you be a sacrifice for them? So again, we, we got to ask ourselves all the time, who are we sacrificing? Are we living our life for ourselves? And in that case, you've become your own God and you're sacrificing yourself on your own altar, just living how you want to live. Or are you making life something more, worth more than you and about more than just you and giving your life to something that is eternal? That, that's what God has in mind for us. Life is about so much more than us. And so many times even, listen, and we're all guilty of it, of a certain level, even, you know, we get married and we have kids and, and it's so hard for us as sometimes as men to get out of this mindset that, that life still revolves around me. No, it doesn't. Life is so much bigger than you individually. Life is so much bigger than me individually. And I've, and I've showed you this before, but, but I love this picture, so I'm going to show it to you again. It's, a, it's the picture of the Hebrew servant. In the Old Testament, it's found in Exodus chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. And it says, now these are the judgments which thou shalt set before them. If thou buy an Hebrew servant, six years he shall serve. And in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he came in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he were married, then his wife shall go out with him. 
If his master have given him a wife, and she have borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. And if the servant shall shall plainly say, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. And his master shall bring him into the judges, and he shall also bring him into the door or under the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall serve him forever." And this is just such a beautiful, beautiful picture is that, you know, the Hebrew servant could go free every seven years. But if he had a family and a, particularly if that family, that wife was given to him by the servant, that the, 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 the wife and those kids still belonged to the servant. And so he had a choice to make, to offer himself as a, as a, to be a servant for the rest of his life. And there are so many pictures in this. And it starts with Jesus because of his willingness to be nailed to a wooden post, because of his love for his bride and his children, right? That's what happens here. They would bring him to the doorpost, and his master bore his ear through with an awl. And so they would take that and that awl, and and he would, you know, physically, they would hit that and put a hole in his ear and put an earring in that signified he was going to serve him forever. And it points to so many beautiful pictures. Again, Jesus being nailed to a wooden post. It points to the Passover and the blood um, that they would put, put on the doorpost. It points to John chapter 10, verse 7, that said, Then said Jesus unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. But then for us, and particularly the men, it, it applies to everybody, but particularly the men, it, it's a picture, there's a picture there for you and me as well. And our choice to be a living sacrifice and, and take up our cross for our family. Listen, we all say, most of us at least, say that, that we love our wife and we love our children. There's one way to definitively prove that. Go to the doorpost. Follow the example of Jesus. This is a beautiful picture in so many ways. You see it again in Deuteronomy 17. It's the same scenario. In the second giving of the law, a servant can go free in that seventh year of service. Deuteronomy 15, verse 16, And it shall be, if he say unto thee, I will not go away from thee, because he loveth thee in thine house, because he is well with thee, then thou shalt take an awl and thrust it through his ear unto the door. And he shall be thy servant forever, and also unto thy maidservant thou shalt do likewise." You see, the servant gets to choose. So it takes a willingness. It takes someone who's willing to show up and then willingly offer. And wow, that's a sacrifice, certainly. It's the only life worth living. Living for something that is bigger than you. It goes back to what Paul told the Philippians. In Philippians chapter 2, it's the one thing that makes your life mean something, which brings you into true fellowship with Christ. He was, Christ gave the ultimate sacrifice, obviously, and we get to partake in that as well. When we give our lives as a living sacrifice, and in doing so, a fellowship is formed, according to Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. And there is a special bond, a special fellowship that comes from experiencing the same type of suffering as Christ. Now, we don't experience it physically, and in in one way, it almost sounds like blasphemy to compare what we go through to what Christ went through. And yet, that's the comparison God makes in his word. When we give our lives daily as a living sacrifice and take up our cross and go to that doorpost, and lay down our life for others. We please him through that, just like Jesus did. You know, when Jesus began his earthly ministry at his baptism, Matthew chapter three, you know, we see what God said about, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. At the end of his physical life, as he offered himself on the cross, God was pleased with and accepted that sacrifice. And there's coming a day that we have the opportunity to hear him say that he's pleased in us and hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, a servant that willingly laid his body against the wooden doorpost 
And that brings us to our third key to a meaningful life. Because here is how you fulfill that sacrifice. You serve. You serve. You show up, you sacrifice, and you serve. Because starting in verse 3, down through verse 24, we get our ne this next list of names. And it was the names of people working and serving in Jerusalem. And we get who was there, how many of them were of the different groups, how many priests there were, how many singers there were, all that. And what they did, what their role was serving the Lord. So, for example, look at verses 9 and 10. So we begin to go through this list. And he says, and, and Joel, the son of Zikri, was the overseer. And Judah, the son of Sunua, was second over the city. Of the priests, Jediah, the son of Joyerib, Jochen. And then look down at verse 12. And their brethren that did the work of the house were 820 and two. And Adiah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Peliha, the son of Amzi, the son of Zechariah, the son of Pasher, the son of Malchiah. Then in verse 15, we see the sons of Bunny. Like I told you last week, dude's a stud, man. He's become my favorite character, this whole book. And then listen to verse 16, down through verse 22. Shebathiah, Josabad of the chief of the Levites, had the oversight of the outward business of the house of God. And Mataniah, the son of Micah, the son of Zabdi, the son of Asaph, was the principal to begin the thanksgiving and prayer. And Bakbukiah, the second among his brethren, Abda, the son of Shemua, the son of Galal, the son of Jejuthun. All the Levites in the holy city were 200, fourscore and four. Moreover, the porters, those were the gatekeepers. Akab, Talman, and their brethren that kept the gates were in 170 and two. And the residue of Israel, of the priests and the Levites, were in all the cities of Judah, everyone in their inheritance. But the Nethanims, those were the temple servants, the temple slaves, willing to do anything to help the priest. It dwelt in Ophel and Ziha and Gispa were over the Nethanims. The overseer also of the Levites at Jerusalem was Uzi, the son of Bani, the son of Hashabiah, the son of Mataniah, the son of Micah, the sons of Asaph. The singers were over the business of the house of God. And it just kind of goes on like that. You see, everybody had a spot in service, working together daily. And listen, that is a beautiful picture of the body of Christ we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're told that there are diversities of gifts and differences of administrations, but one Lord and one body of Christ. Then, then look at verse 12 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul says, For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by, for by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. And so Paul says, we're all together. We've been baptized into one spirit. And the baptism that Paul's talking about here is not water baptism that we perform in, in the tank back here on most first Sundays. What happens in that tank of water is a picture of what happens to us spiritually when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, when the Spirit of God immerses us into the body of Christ. And God's plan then is for us to serve together. Look at verse 20. But now are they many members, yet but one body. And this is a key concept to understand and the the picture of baptism is a key concept to understand because, listen, we're not immersed into ourselves. We are immersed into the body. And that's pictured by what we do here with the local church as a family unit. And we are to serve the Lord and each other together. You can't get around that fact we are to live and serve in relationship. And it's been like that from the beginning of man. After God created Adam, he said in Genesis 2.18 that it wasn't good for man to be alone, so he made Eve. Therefore, no one has the right to say, I don't need you. I don't need this church. 
I can do my own thing. I can stay away from here or I can stay away from my family. You're out of God's will if you say that or think that or live that. And that's exactly the principle we see here in Nehemiah chapter 11. We see the list of people and the groups who all had specific gifts and abilities. There were those involved in outreach. Now, again, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you the picture. I'm, not, I'm showing you that I'm, I'm mingling the picture here with what they were doing. There were those involved in outreach. They had oversight of the outward business of the house of God. There were the porters and the gatekeepers. They physically kept the gates and they controlled who went in and out. For us, that pictures people who know doctrine and protect the city from false teachers, protect the church from false teachers getting in. There were the Nethanims. They were the temple servants that were willing to do anything. They were the utility players. They could do it all and they were willing to do it. And they assisted the Levites. They made the, the pastor's job so much easier. And there were project managers who kept the internal wheel spinning and everybody on track. And there were those who specialized in prayer and music and special care of the people. And we're not even going to read these verses, but if you look in verses 25 through 36, it talks about the surrounding villages. And guess what? There were people that were supposed to move to the villages and live in the villages, kind of like our missionaries of today. This all sounds like a good church to me. It sounds like a healthy body because the fact is we need everybody serving for it to work as God designed. And you might think, well, yeah, that sounds great, but I don't know where I fit in. I don't, I don't, know, what, I don't know where I'm supposed to be. And the truth is I might not know for you either, but I know there's a place. So let's find it. I also know this. You can find where you fit in much easier if you just show up and start somewhere. Get involved and then God can direct you. It's much easier for God to steer you if you're already moving. Too many times people wanna know exactly what their spiritual gift is or gifts are and find the perfect spot of ministry that suits their every desire before they get involved. They only wanna teach or they only wanna do this or that. I don't know, that doesn't sound much like a servant's heart to me. If you know your spiritual gift, great. But if you don't, do you know the best way to find out? Listen, the best way to find out isn't from a test. It's probably based in psychology anyway. The best way to find out is just get involved. Start somewhere and God will direct you from there. Don't you think he can do that? Don't you think he can guide you and steer you if you just get involved? But he wants you to move. Um, I mean, he obviously made the first move by, by dying on the cross for us. I mean, that small little detail. But because of that, don't you think it's time for you to move now? And listen, here's what's so cool about all of this. and It's just how good God is. He doesn't have to do this. It's just, it's just what he does. When you do, when you show up, and you sacrifice, and you serve, then you get singled out. You're singled out for the good. All these guys, they've said this over and over, all these guys serving in Jerusalem, we now know them by name. As difficult as some of those names are to pronounce, we still know them. And they were praised for their work. Like in verse six, we see a group called Valiant Men. In verse 14, they're called mighty men of valor, which, you know, has a particular meaning in the Old Testament. But this is much later than David, by the way. But they're called mighty men of valor. They're called great men in verse 14. And I don't know about you, but that's my goal. That's how I want God to look at me. And again, we've talked about this over and over throughout this book, but listing the names and praising them was important to Nehemiah. Because it's important to God. Nehemiah did it. Nehemiah listed all these names under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it shows us that our Heavenly Father sees and records what his children do as they serve him. And even if others don't recognize or appreciate your service, if, if we miss it, you can be sure that God knows all about it. And he will re reward you accordingly. But for that to happen... First thing you gotta do is you gotta show up. 
Never underestimate the value of your presence with your kids, in your home, at this church. Don't be negligent in this area. This life is about more than you. In fact, it's not really about you. So show up for them. And when you do, offer yourself as a sacrifice. Being willing to go to the doorpost, modeling Jesus as you serve him. Wherever, however, and if you do that, you can trust that it's gonna be worth it in the end. That is a meaningful life right there. Those are the most simple points I can give you. Show up, sacrifice, and serve. And when you do that, you're living a meaningful life. But does that describe your life? Or is your life still about you? If it is, grow past that. Get involved with us here in service to the Lord. He is worthy of all we can give him. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed. And as we're wrapping this up and we're preparing to, to sing this final song of worship, this is a time that I just want you to, to use as, as examination, as contemplation. And just what you've heard this morning, just ask yourself if God is, is, is wanting something of you. Do you need to show up? Do you need to sacrifice? Do you need to get involved with us and serve here? And if God's asking that of you, if the Holy Spirit is convicting you of that, why don't you make the decision to do what he's asking you to do today? Make the decision there in your pew if you need to come up to this altar and, and get down and, and, and let him know that you're gonna do it, do that, it doesn't matter. And if you don't know him as your personal savior, if you're here today but there's never been a time in your life that, that you have placed your faith in the finished work of, of Christ on the cross as, as in, in place of you and in place of your sins, dying for your sins, if there's never been a time that you've made that step, you can do that today too. Man, that, that's the first place to show up. Show up and get connected to God in a relationship. And that's easy to do. All you have to do is believe that God did what he said and confess him as Lord. And, and that you're putting your trust in him and what he did. That there's nothing you can do to earn salvation. It's what he did. And if you want help with that, if you don't understand all that, what that means, what I just said, come talk to me after the service or come up during the song. It doesn't even matter. We'd love to talk to you about that and show you what it means to be saved. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for your word and, and the beautiful pictures that we see, not only in this book, but just throughout your word and what they mean for us uh, in our individual lives today, in our homes, with our families, and in this church. And so, Lord, I pray that you just use it uh, to, to convict us where, where we need to be convicted. And, and Lord, just for your own glory, that you'd be glorified through it. Lord, we're so thankful for who you are. We're so thankful for the sacrifice you made for us. And Lord, we love you. And, and we ask you to continue to work in individual lives, continue to work in the life of this church uh, for your own glory. We love you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.